This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Cameron McCormick. And I'm Corey Lundberg, and together Cam and I run an organization called Altus Performance, which exists to help athletes that are currently at or aspiring to the very highest levels of performance. Big part of our job as coaches is to decipher the differences between those high performers and those that are climbing that competitive ladder. They're, they're striving to reach the next level. What are the behaviors and mindsets and tactics being deployed by the very best in the world? And how can we make sure that we develop those same traits and others that we coach? And to better understand those contributing factors, Cam and I started interviewing some of our clients that had achieved some extraordinary things in the last couple of years. And in these conversations, so many of the same themes kept coming up. There seemed to be some real commonalities in these high achievers that internally as coaches, we wanted to make sure that we documented because we realized how important these insights could be to pass along to other players that were coaching. And we left these amazing conversations knowing that we were onto something that would not only help us develop other high performers, but maybe would resonate with an audience outside of sports. The problem is, is the comparisons to somebody who really never screwed up, Tiger, and how unrealistic that really had been and how stronger mentally he was in those situations. I think he's an underrated player. And that's saying something. I think he was an underrated player. Before we get into the actual content of our first episode, we want to talk about the impetus for this project and why we felt compelled to share in this way. First off, we love the podcast medium. There is a long list of podcasts that we enjoy and are influenced by, and we feel passionate about the message that we share on a daily basis with our clients, and the podcast format provides an avenue to share that message with a greater audience. And second, we kept having these amazing conversations with the people that we come into contact with. Whether it be our clients, players like Jordan Spieth, Anna Nordquist, Soyon Yu, Bo Hostler, meaning professional golfers at the top of the world rankings, or our younger clients at the top of their respective national ranks, or even some of the leaders of industry that we often come into contact with through our travels. So in a nutshell, that's the origin of this project. We've compiled scores of audio interviews, and we'll use them to frame conversations on topics that we see as being massive contributors to high performance in any field. From these initial conversations internally with our Altus clients, we've developed a bit of a framework that we'll work within. The highest performance have acquired a set of skills we'll call separating skills. Their performance capacities outside of what would be considered traditional hard skills, those things that we can see, that help separate these players from their peers. And those skills are an expression of certain behaviors, what we refer to as edge-earning actions. The highest performers execute with steadfast discipline. And further peeling back the onion, those behaviors are often the result of personality traits or high-caliber characteristics, as we call it, that we've found to be common amongst these high performers. So that's our goal to help you, the listener, explore the skills, actions, characteristics necessary to earn your edge and achieve your goals. Much of our ethos at Altus is reflected by an Aristotle quote, excellence is never an accident, it's always the result of high intention, sincere effort, intelligent execution. It represents the wise choice of many alternatives. 
Choice, not chance, determines your destiny. It's our goal that this and future episodes of this podcast will better inform those choices for you. So stay tuned as we start this journey together, this journey to earn your edge. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Now to episode one of the Earn Your Edge podcast, bravado and bravery, how high performers respond to challenge. The chase to earn your edge begins with reaction to challenge. It's a clear separating skill that was embedded into every conversation we had. And contrasting that with those athletes who haven't yet reached the level they aspire to, we observe some really poor reactions to a challenging event. For example, they define themselves by these defeating moments, allowing the event or circumstances to rob themselves of the necessary confidence necessary to perform at the highest of levels. So we want to start our discussion on responding to challenge with an excerpt from an interview with Jordan Spieth, where Jordan and I discussed the events of last year's Open Championship, where coming off a disappointing final round at Augusta in 2016, Jordan found himself with a lead, but on the 13th hole hitting an errant tee shot that again put him at risk of losing the lead in a major championship. Listen closely for a few topics that we'll be discussing throughout the episode, specifically the optimism and grit Jordan describes when reliving his emotions and thought processes as he faced this adversity during the final round. The Open was this anger at what could come and this, I still have time and I'm in still in this position. Like the Masters after that hole, you know, I needed to go three or four under or something to finish right. in six holes, which I guess technically I did yeah, have yeah. to do that in the British too. But at the time, I was I was one back at the end of it thinking I couldn't play any worse. I give myself any opportunities and I felt like I was going to be okay. I felt like because I was playing alongside the guy, I, it was just almost just a match play scenario right. and that helped. So a bit fortunate in that circumstance versus the masters where if it were smiley in my group that was the other guy and when we still had those holes then i would have felt like you know and i did i still felt like i had a chance i could close those last six holes but it was this anger it was this frustration and this then that led to this refusal like this refusal to go through that again i thought i really was not a happy person from april of 16 through you know probably the end of the year, the beginning of the year of 17. I mean, about 12 months ago. I I just, there was always that something over my head. I went from the, hey, congrats on everything to the, you know, hey, what's going on? Like just the way that I was talked to was different every day. If I get run into in the grocery store, it's, man, you're going to get the master's next year versus, hey man, congrats on winning the master. Like it was, you know, if I had just gotten a solid 10th place finish that year in 16, then I'd have been a, I would have been in a completely different boat. But I fell back a lot on this quote. It's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. It's the man in the arena. I relied a lot on that the week of the British. I thought I'm, I'm in the best position I've been in. You know, the Masters, I was in the second to last group this last year. And I just, I didn't have it that week. I didn't feel good. But the Open, I felt good. I was hitting the ball great. I was finally putting a bit better. And I was leading from the get-go. And I, and I just, I, I, I followed that quote, the man in the arena. It's not the critic. It's 
It's the man who's actually there who fails and gets back up and tries again, who triumphs. It just freed me up. It freed me up to say, it freed me up to believe what I was already voicing. It's clear that Jordan made a choice with how he would respond to the adversity presented by losing the lead at the Masters in 16 and the potential of a similar outcome at the 2017 Open Championship. As he said, he refused. And this is the reaction to challenge that we hear time and time again with high performers. There's a choice. You can either accept the failure, you can let it define you, or you can choose option B and and dig deep for something more. In 1988, the coach for the Cal swimming team took action on a hunch that he had about the performance of his swimmers. He observed that there was a real difference in how his swimmers would respond to disappointment. Some would come back stronger than before, while some struggled to bounce back. If he could identify some characteristic that would predict that response, he might have a better luck recruiting swimmers that were more likely to overcome adversity. So after reading some studies on optimism, he contacted psychology professor Martin Seligman to see if his studies might reveal something more regarding this observation that he had about his team. Together, they ran an experiment. Through a series of assessment tools, swimmers on his team were categorized as either being pessimists or optimists, and both groups of swimmers competed in a test where the experimenters controlled the conditions to simulate the situation of defeat, and then they measured the response. All the swimmers were tasked with swimming their very best event as fast as they could, and when they completed the race, the coaches reported back their times to them and they fudged a little bit. They added a little time to each swimmer's actual result. So depending on the length of the race, they either added one and a half to five seconds, just some amount that the testers felt would be undetectable to the swimmer, but still enough that the result would come as a a real disappointment to them. And it worked. No swimmers realized that their times had been tampered with, uh, and many were, were really distraught upon hearing their recorded times. But the swimmers would get a second chance. After a little bit of rest, they'd be given a chance to improve their time in a second race. So the the group that had been identified as pessimists all turned in slower times on that second race, uh, even slower than their original trial. And the optimists, they all maintained or some even improved upon the, the real race times from the first try. And the the changes weren't insignificant. In many instances, the the differences in times from the first to the second would have separated first place from last place. These two groups responded to the simulated defeat in entirely different ways, where the pessimists accepted defeat and performance deteriorated, whereas the optimists, they refused to accept that defeat. They got back in the pool and they tried harder, which brings us back to that, that word, they refused. So back to the refusal, I want to clarify that because that's an interesting comment. So when you say a refusal to let it happen again, do you mean like a a bear down and I'm going to... This stops now. Or is it is any part of that an acceptance of, I'm not going to let it happen again because even if this doesn't go the way I need it to go, there's an acceptance there and I don't give a shit what anyone says or thinks because of it that kind of freed you up or something. That's certainly... The, the latter would have been ideal, and the latter was definitely the way I was thinking about it going into each round. And as I started the rounds, and even after a bogey, you know, a couple of bogeys in a row to start, I thought, you know, I'm going to fight. And if it's not my day, I don't feel that good with the putter. I, I putted horribly to start the round. If it doesn't go my way, I'm the one that's doing this. I can answer to these confidently that, that I have the belief in myself that I'll have enough positions and it'll... But it also is unique. We have four majors, and to have a chance to win one on a Sunday with a lead, 
you understand that that situation still doesn't come around that often. Even if I've had a, a lot of them for the amount I've played in, it's still maybe twice a year. And if you get yourself into that position, you've done all the work you want. Now it's about you, you should be prepared mentally to continue what you're doing and blocking out everything else. So yes, I was prepared going in, but in the midst of battle and, and things not going well, it was the, I found a way to somehow channel what I would call not a great way to think about things during the round. I was not in a good place, but found a way to, to channel this instead of, you know what? I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to focus on every shot, pick small targets. If it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world to have my health, but you know, putting things in perspective, that wasn't there. That wasn't there. It was, I simply do not and refuse and still believe in myself that I have time to not have to go through what I've gone through in the past. And so that's ultimately what we all face. Circumstances that ask us a question. Faced with challenge, are you going to cower in the corner and claim to be a victim? Or are you going to be the fighter, the warrior, the person who summons 30 seconds of courage? The sort of courage we hear echoing through our conversations with these amazing athletes. The sort of courage-filled actions that Anna embodies. Just I think I've you- always been ambitious and I always put everything into it. I'm a competitive, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of sport it is. I still love sports. Uh, if I didn't be a, like I found obviously my, my calling in golf, but if it wasn't for golf, it would probably be another sport. Like I love sports and uh, practicing, working hard. I mean, in school, I always wanted to have the best grades. So I always pushed myself hard and I always wanted to be as good as I could yeah. at it. So um, there was a lot of other girls that was way better than I did, but I just ended up outworking them and that got me a little bit further than, than where they ended up. But I got ignored a little bit from the Swedish national team when I was, I would say I was 16. I always picked a, picked a team and I wasn't picked for the team for the following year. And some of the girls, they were my friends and they got picked for some reason and I'd been playing better than them. So if there's a moment I look back to that was kind of not career defining, but definitely a, a turning point for my golf was not getting picked for the, the Swedish national team yeah. that year. Um, I worked my ass off all winter that year and just didn't accept the fact that they got picked and I didn't. And, you know, I I just saw it as motivation to work yeah. even harder. So I think I, <laughs> I actually lowered my average score by a good five or six shots that winter wow. from what 78 to maybe 72 one on the swedish professional ladies tour and then finally they they picked me for the team but uh, so you won a professional event in sweden yeah that year. wow yeah when i was i think i was 17 it was in june i won that event and that was kind of like the turning point for for getting picked for to go play girls British Open and some international tournaments, even just be on the team. So, yeah, it, just rejections never been, or someone telling me you can't do it, or um, just that feeling of rejection that winter. I mean, it fired up yeah. something inside of me, and I think that's that's a fire that I've always had. My brothers, their technique and you know their talent for golf was way better than mine. My older brother has a, had a great swing. He doesn't play much more. He has kids, um, but he had such an amazing swing, but just a little bit too lazy and yeah. just didn't get the 
you know, he didn't get picked either for the national team, but instead of triggering it the way it triggered me, it, right. he kind of felt it more as a little bit of rejection and that it wasn't good enough. My younger brother is still really good. He quit a couple of years ago. Um, he could have easily played on tour and I always tell everyone when they ask me who's the better golfer in the family and I obviously have to answer it's me but honestly I think he could beat me any given day especially at the same tees because he's pretty far but he's just such a talent and he just just comes very natural so in a way I think it might have (laughs) scared him a little bit having me as his older sister just knowing how much work I put into it and I was traveling and you know, on tour and stuff. So, yeah, they didn't quite want to put in the hours and they yeah. saw how much I kind of had to sacrifice and they, they just wasn't willing to do that. And I think family is very important and they, they met their uh, significant others very quickly. So yeah. it just golf kind of it wasn't really the, the first priority, but I think I have a, a little more fire than they do. And I think a lot of... A lot of it, I, I love a challenge, and that kind of what drives me. I do hit a lot of furs and I do hit a lot of greens, but, you know, once in a while, yeah, you are behind the tree and you have to hook it, and even if you haven't hit that shot for three, four weeks, you know, you still have a way to pull it off. And right. so I think just loving a challenge and also embracing the challenge, I think it's different from when you are able to pull it off and when you aren't. It's one thing to have the refuse-to-lose attitude, a foundational behavioral trait that fuels effort well beyond common, well beyond the point when most have already thrown in the towel and headed home with that internal dialogue, it just wasn't my day. It's that stick with itness attitude embodied in the two-word statement, I will. But at what point does this dog determination to achieve, to win, shift and begin manifesting itself as dysfunctional behavior? In our class, right, our, our junior golf class and high school class, will end up going down as one of the best to ever play golf. Just it already we're already off to a phenomenal start. So there was a lot of the same type of conversation, but you can tell which individuals thought differently, which ones were out there and were slamming clubs or negativity was 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 with them. And and sure when you're when you're learning and you're an adolescent and you're, you know, 14, 15 years old, there is a learning curve in controlling frustration. And learning how to churn it into, you can actually make it positive uh, to an extent, but none of us really know how to do that when we're 14, 15, 16 year old. But going through experiences, beat down experiences, experiences where I saw myself, you know, fail when I had a chance to win tournaments constantly. I also succeeded too, but I failed more than I succeeded. But the way that I then talked about it afterwards when I would explain what happened to a friend, whether we're having lunch after versus when, you know, maybe that peer would explain the same kind of situation they had at a different time. And the wording, which made me think at the time, okay, the wording was different. And it made me think at the time, wow, you know, I I feel like I actually got something that's going to help me in the future versus something that maybe brought this person down. And therefore, I feel like I just gained an advantage over them. So as an edge-earning action, we should grow the skill of observation, taking a few steps back to learn from those around you. Adjacent to you in battle, there are others you're competing with, and Jordan demonstrates a force multiplier towards accelerating his learning curve in the previous statements. To learn from others' experiences and use those lessons in practice and competition 
is to separate yourself from your competition. And further, Jordan speaks to excuse making as being the antithesis of this observational learning mindset. What he's speaking to here is what psychologists call attribution, or said in another way, how we choose to frame the experiences we go through and link causality to them, the why these things happen. If there was a, a good break or you got kind of a, you got, you felt like you got screwed off of a good shot or something, then, you know, maybe there's a little difference there, but if it's constant and there's multiple factors that you're using as excuses, then yeah, that, that's only going to hurt. And that still is that the case to that this day. I mean, I see it on the PJ tour all the time and, you know, I get deemed as lucky. They call me golden child. Yeah. I mean, I get, well, I mean, you can't get lucky right. over nice. the course of a career, five years in, in what we've been able to accomplish. So and it doesn't bother me at all. And in fact, the more it's looked at as, you know, I got lucky, the more I don't, I don't look at that as I don't have, these people don't think I have the skill. I look at it as, you know, they just don't think they're going to get the breaks. And if I believe that, you know, the work goes in that I'm going to give myself the, I'm going to put myself in the right position to where I have a better opportunity to, to score lower. I don't care how it happens. The idea is at the end of the day, I have a lower score, but yes, back in junior golf, I could see I was more focused when I didn't, when I had failures, I don't know if failures is the appropriate word, but when I fell short, I was more interested in where was the misexecution. Sure, I maybe got a bad break, but why did I hit it in that bunker that it plugged into? Why are my misses consistently on this side? Why do I have a tendency for the, my, my putts to be shorter when I'm nervous? It was, how can I compile similar tendencies from multiple setbacks and that's where you start to see your trends. So if courage is the desired behavior or a mindset in reaction to challenge, there's an additional foundational behavior, which Jordan is speaking about, that we pinpoint as an edge earning action towards success. Objective self-reflection. What those in the sports science domains would call metacognition or thinking about thinking. Asking yourself the critical questions framed by objectivity versus emotion and coming up with answers that paint the picture of what am I going to learn from this experience that makes me better tomorrow so that I'm better the next time I do battle, step in the ring, into that meeting, in that class or in life. Positively make adjustments that when you get in that situation, you go, okay, I'm feeling the pressure right now. I feel adrenaline. My body gets quick. I miss my long irons to the right. Okay, why don't I slow it down a little bit and test this out? It's these kind of adjustments off of mis-execution off of, on setbacks that allowed me to, I think, take bigger steps forward and, and propel me above other competitions. So let's use the, the final round at the open as an example. Are there any processes or tactics that you deploy in the moment that you say, okay, I'm going to fall back on this if I get in a situation that allows me to react to a challenge in a way? Because, I mean, there's, there's as you said, there's plenty of evidence and whether it be holding out a bunker shot at John Deere or again, you know, being in a playoff and being in a greenside bunker and pulling out again, there's, there's all these examples of uh, demonstrating this knack or this ability to respond to challenges in a pretty extraordinary way. So as coaches, you know, my curiosity is, is there anything? What did I fall yeah, back on? How did I flip the switch? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did a great job in the way that I talked to the media and saying, look, I'm going to put myself in these positions enough where there's going to be situations like 16 and there's going to be situations like 2015. 
where I pull through and maybe somebody else three putts on the last hole and I'm I'm the beneficiary. Well, now I screwed up and someone else was the beneficiary. If you're in the position enough, the problem is is the comparisons to somebody who really never screwed up. Tiger. Right. And uh, how unrealistic that really had been and how sh- stronger mentally he was in those situations. I think he's an underrated player. And that's saying something. I think he was an underrated player. Which you're at, at liberty to say because you're the only one who knows how hard, or you're one of the only ones that knows how hard he... And I've only experienced, you know, the the position to win a major tide or in the lead. And, you know, maybe I've probably been in, what, four or five of them now. I mean, five or actually five or six times now at 24. And, you know, it was similar for him. And I think by the time he was, when he was, by the time he turned 25, I want to say he was, he had probably won four or five of them. Yeah. So... And looking back now, you know, I'm I, I'm able to appreciate and celebrate and enjoy this win as much as probably more than the 2015 Masters, right. even though it didn't do as much for me as the 2015 Masters. Internally, it did more more for me, but I still have this. Okay, I'm going to put myself in enough positions, and I unfortunately have a knack for crazy things. I mean, yeah. I've certainly had blowaway wins. And they're great and all, but I've had this knack for craziness on the good and the bad side that probably won't go away. It's a work in progress mentally to be able to make it more boring, to get out there and just continue what you were doing the first three rounds. But when it's when the finish line starts to come up, your heartbeat starts racing. And it I still learn more things every single, I'm still young. I'm still learning how to manage that. Um, in different parts of my game. In that final statement, I'm still learning how to manage that. Jordan's essentially saying that this reaction to challenge mindset is a tool that he's going to continue to sharpen because he recognizes the importance of it and that it's a big difference maker in the results. And shouldn't that be what we're all doing? Identifying areas for improvement. Are we missing a tool or tools or do some of our tools just need some sharpening and then get to it, take action. Like Jordan and Anna, be the cork that when pushed under the water bounces back out. So that's where we'll leave you. We know that adversity is an inevitable part of not just the sport world, but the human experience. How we endure through these moments largely determines whether or not we'll reach our goals. And there's a word that we recently learned from a Finnish friend called Sisu. And apparently this is a cultural construct in Finland that describes a military conflict in which the Finns overcame some massive disadvantage in manpower. And it's a word to define their national spirit and one that rings true to the conversation that we've had here. In 1940, Time Magazine defined Sisu as a compound of bravado and bravery, of ferocity and tenacity, of the ability to keep fighting after most people would have quit, and to fight with the will to win. So you're standing on the first tee in a big event. You're about to speak to an audience of peers, essentially putting yourself out on any stage to perform, to be judged by others. Performance beyond a level where we feel comfortable elicits a response, the heartbeat, the sweaty palms, the dry mouth, the physiological manifestation of the fight or flight response. Our brains and body in crisis mode. Are we up to the challenge? Stay tuned as we hear from our players and describe performance under pressure. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 